Hello, and welcome to Pineapple Reels. I'm your host, Nia. And if you're wondering why I sound so different, I am losing my voice and I am desperately trying to get it back. Now, on this episode of Pineapple Reels, I'll be covering Shang-Chi and The Legend of Ten Rings. Stay tuned. Shang-Chi was directed by Destin Daniel Cretton and written by Dave Callahan, Destin Daniel Cretton, Andrew Lanham, and Dave Callahan. The it's also based on the Marvel comics by Jim Starlin and Steve Englehart. The plot for Shang-Chi is as follows. Shang-Chi is a master of unarmed weaponry based Kung Fu, and he is forced to confront his past after being drawn into the Ten Rings organization. Okay, so I'm going to give my personal synopsis. It'll just basically be like a quick overview. And then I'll give a more detailed, spoiler-friendly review where, you know, if you want to know what's going, what happens in the movie, you don't mind it being spoiled, or you've already seen it and you want to know, you know, what what my viewpoint was or someone else relates to you, you go ahead and listen to that. And I'll make sure, of course, to put a little reminder there in case you don't want to hear that portion. Okay, so for my spoiler-free portion, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings debuted in theaters on September 3rd, 2021. It's the latest Marvel slash Disney film, and to put it frankly, it did not disappoint. This synopsis of mine won't have spoilers, again, just to let you know, until later. So here's my spoiler-free opinion on the film. I went to my local Alamo Draft House to see Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I've been excited to see this since it was announced, and that excitement grew after the first trailer debuted. And right from the start, we get action, and I love that, and I cannot stress it enough. It is really great and beautiful action. Throughout the film, the fight scenes get better and better. They showcase each individual skill set, and it looks believable. The story is pretty amazing and solid, apart from one or two mishaps with following the storylines, as well as how certain characters interact with each other. And um, I am not Asian, but I deeply related with being a child of a non-American-born citizen, bringing foods to school for lunch that are deemed normal in your household, but are looked at as weird to Westerners. I appreciate the comedic timing of Aquafina and Simo Liu. And, you know, they were truly hilarious. They were laugh out funny to me. And honestly, just about every scene that Aquafina was in, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Regarding the comic, I can only go by the information I found online since I've never read the comics um, of that one in particular or their or their Marvel counterparts. Uh, Shang-Chi debuted in a special Marvel edition, uh, Marvel edition comic, number 15, cover dated December 1973 in the Bronze Age of comic books and starred in his own solo title until 1983. Comparing the research I came across regarding the comic and the film, there are some differences as uh, and some characters um, from the comic aren't in the film, but maybe they'll appear in a later sequel. We could only wait and see. Now for the spoiler edition. 
that is the sound of the spoiler alert. If you have not seen this movie and don't want it ruined, go ahead and start the podcast, go watch the film, then come back when you're done. In the future, we could see a Shang-Chi and Spider-Man link up. Captain America, and if possible, Beast from X-Men, if that crossover could ever get cleared, fingers crossed. Now, the film opens with telling the tale of Zhu Wenwu. Thousands of years ago, Wenwu finds the Ten Rings, which are ten mystical weapons that grant their user immortality and great power. Now, with the power of the Ten Rings, Wenwu gains power as he and his armies conquer kingdom after kingdom. But it seems to not be enough for him as he wants more power. He goes looking for the village of Talo, which has various mythical beings. He tries to gain access, but is denied by the village's gatekeeper, Yinglu. While fighting with each other, well, against each other, Wenwu falls in love, and so does Yinglu. Ultimately, she leaves her village to marry him, and soon after, they start a family. A boy, Shang-Chi, and a girl, Yilang. When Wu puts the Ten Rings away, as well as his organization, to care for his family. And it seems like he really wants to be a family man. He's not coerced into it. We don't see a scene of them talking. It, it seems as though, hey, I'm very happy. I could have everything that I want. I don't need these things anymore. And he puts them away for good. Well, one day while he is gone, a group known as the Iron Gang with a vendetta come knocking and ultimately kill his wife as collateral damage. After her death, Wenwu wants justice, obviously, and has a vendetta against the Iron Gang and anyone in his way. He goes back to the Ten Rings to uh, to get them and goes to the Iron Gang and massacres them. And eventually, he goes back to his criminal power-hungry ways. And I get that they're making him a villain, but it's understandable. How would you feel if the love of your life and mother of your children was brutally slain and it's 100% your fault. You want justice, you have a vendetta, you just want the people who did it to hurt like you hurt and their families are hurt in the way that you're hurting. So you're doing it blindly and you don't care who is hurt in the process. Now at this time, when we begins Shang-Chi's training in various martial arts and even sends him to assassinate the man responsible for his mother's death at the young age of 14. After the mission, Shang-Chi escapes to California and changes his name to Sean. Now, cut to present day, San Francisco. Shang-Chi, or as he's known now as Sean, is a valet with his friend Katie, played by Aquafina. Katie and Sean are very close friends and have known each other since about high school. We see that Sean received a postcard from China of a red paper dragon, which we will later find out is from his sister, also, when Sean comes over, Katie's grandma, or Oma, asks Sean when the two of them will marry. Sean laughs it off and says they are just friends, and Katie agrees. I did like this parallel because I thought that it would later blossom into this like love story which is what we typically see between a guy and girlfriend who are saying like oh hey like we're just friends something's going on and I liked how they ended it uh in the movie with the ending there wasn't um this super duper romantic thing it could be taken as either they're still close friends I'm gonna take it as they're still close that they're still close friends because it wasn't like super duper romantic now on the bus while heading to work, Sean and Katie are attacked by the Ten Rings, led by Razor Fist. 
And Sean successfully fights him off to Katie's surprise as she had no idea that he could fight. Once the fight is over, Sean realizes that his pendant that he wears around his neck since he was a child is gone. Now, that was given to him by his mother that we see earlier in the film. Now, worried that they might go after his sister, Sean decides to track her down and McCall with the insistent Katie, who basically forces her forces her way with Sean of like, hey, I'm going to go with you to China. I just found all this like, news about you. Like, we have a long talk uh, that we need to do. We can do all that on the plane. And I definitely agree. There's a lot of stuff that Sean needs to tell his close friend. Sean and Katie find Zhao Ling at an underground fight club that she owns. Sean finds this out after fighting with her, and the fight club is intruded by the Ten Rings. One Ru, their father, arrives as well and brings his children home, both who have had let their relationship with their father to live their own lives on their terms without his restrictions. Sean, Ajaling, and Katie are all taken to their father's compound. Once there, he lets them know that he thinks their mother is still alive and is being kept at her village of Tao Lo. And both Sean and Ajaling are kind of like, uh, no, no, dad, you gotta let that go. She's, she's gone. And he's like, uh, no, she's not. Like, she's, she's been calling to me. So he really needs their help because he needed their pendant to see a map that could show him the way to the village as the path to the village only shows up at a certain time. And um, after freeing Lee, Wenwu plans on destroying the village. Sean and Jialing don't agree and think that their father just misses his wife tremendously. And uh, due to them not seeing things his way, he locks them up along with Katie. I, I wasn't surprised by this. I did find it kind of odd, the pacing of it, because it went from, you know, in the beginning, it's these guys are trying to literally kill Sean to get this pendant, right? And then with this, it's literally them, like, fighting on these uh, rafters outside the building. And, you know, the henchmen are falling to their death, so it's very obvious that Sean and Jalene could be falling to their death as well, too. And the father even made a comment after the after they fought off some of the henchmen. They said, you know, I told them they could try, but they would never be able to to kill you. And I'm like, you're his dad. Like, I understand tough love, but uh, this is a bit extreme. What what if he couldn't fend for himself and he ended up dead? Would you have felt remorseful or would you have been, you know what? He should have kept up with his training or, well, he shouldn't have left home and this wouldn't have happened, you know? So, like... That was kind of weird to me and like 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 one of the few things that was kind of off to me of either the placement or editing or just the pace of how things were going. Um, so to go from we're not talking to our father, we both left the compound and like led our own life and did our own things to, um, you know, dad sent henchmen out for us to dad's like, hey, we're going home. And they just, you know, willfully go with the father which i think part of that is you know respecting your elders respecting your parents and doing as you were told and then for the dad to be like you know what y'all don't agree with me that's cool y'all just go into the jail like i really don't even care right now like i have stuff to do and i'm on a mission and ain't i'm not gonna let anybody get in my way of my mission so while they were in prison, they meet Trevor, who's an actor, and uh, he helps them escape the compound along with his furry friend, who is a faceless mythical being from Tolo. He want who wants to go home and can show them the way. And the creature, though, it's like ugly cute. It's like this furry little mythical being that's kind that's faceless. So it's kind of weird when you see it, but 
you know, throughout the film, you kind of, you get this, you get this likeness for it and you like, you just really appreciate it. So they escape the compound while being chased by Razor Fist and the Iron Gang in a car and they speed towards Talo to warn them of Wen Wu's arrival. And uh, this mythical being, uh, I believe his name is Murray, he's able to show the way. And the way is through this forest. I believe it's made of bamboo. Am I correct? I think I'm correct. But it's a forest. And the forest changes. So as they're driving through whatever path they've made, it's closing in. At first, it's kind of going slow and then it's going faster. But the path is closing behind them so that no one else can see the way that they're going. And they're able to get through and they make it to the village of Talo. And as they're driving through... It looks beautiful. It is gorgeous scenery, amazing, beautiful plant life. These these mythical creatures and beings. We see, you know, um, a group of uh, Murray's, you know, other like uh, creatures that look just like him. So I, I really, really like that part. It, like, took me a moment to just like really soak all of it in. Of like, wow, this is like a really beautiful world that they created. At arrival, they meet Lee's sister, who is their aunt Ying Nan. She tells him the history of Talo and that thousands of years ago, they were attacked by the soul-consuming dweller in darkness and its minions. The village was saved by a dragon called the Great Protector, and they were sealed, uh, the Great Protector sealed the dwellers in darkness and its minions in a mountain behind a door or a seal, never to be opened again. The villagers help by guarding the entrance and warding off anyone who tries to get in. And Nan believes that the Dweller in Darkness has been the one responsible for convincing Wen Wu that Li is still alive. Now everyone prepares and trains for Wen Wu's arrival. Sure enough, Wen Wu, along with the Ten Rings and his henchmen, arrive to break the seal in the hopes of rescuing Li. But the villagers of Taolo tell him to leave. He refuses and a battle ensues. Wen Wu and Shang-Chi fight. And it seems as though our hero is done. When... When uh, Wen Wu throws him deep into a nearby lake, it just seems like that's it. And when Wen Wu, when, uh, Wen Wu arrives at the seal, he still hears Lee's voice, which seems like it's coming from behind the seal. And this motivates him to begin breaking it down. Now, without his knowledge, many of the millions, minions are escaping through the cracks in the seal that he's creating when he's punching it. Now, meanwhile, when this is going on, the Ten Rings and the villagers are fighting, but they cease fighting and call a truce once these creatures are coming out. And the Iron Gang sees, oh, these are these things are going to attack all of us. It's not, you know, picking a certain a certain side. So they cease fighting, call a truce, and they tackle the bigger threat, the Dweller in Darkness and his minions. And a dragon, again, known as a Great Protector, uh, is in the lake and he revives Shang-Chi. And together, together... They, the battle against the minions. Now, Shang-Chi and his father face off one last time. Shang-Chi, this time, is winning, is going, it wins. And uh, due to feeding on the souls given to it by its minions, a dweller in darkness escapes. One who finally realizes that his wife is not there and she's never going to come back, that she's truly gone. He ends up saving Shang-Chi in a last effort by sacrificing himself and gives his son the Ten Rings right before his soul is taken. By working together, Shang-Chi, Xiaoling, Katie, and the Great Protector kill the Dweller in Darkness. Shang-Chi and Katie return to San Francisco, and while at dinner with friends at a restaurant, 
they're telling them what's going on like why they were gone why they're in china so long and their friends are just kind of looking at them like yeah okay and when the friends even say okay i get it i was making fun of you for what you were doing but you don't have to come come up with this like super ridiculous story and a little after she says that they are summoned by Wong the sorcerer who just you know makes a portal in the middle of a restaurant and everybody's kind of staring at the portal thinking so everyone sees this man that is teleported inside here and this is, is about to disappear right and so the sorcerer needs the two of them to help him at the sanctum sanctorium now the mid credit scenes uh is Shang uh, Shang Chi he speaks with Bruce Banner and Carol Danvers and they discover that the ten rings are emitting or they are emitting a mysterious signal of sorts. And the post credit scene is Xiaoling becomes a new leader of the Ten Rings. We also see that uh she's having men and women work together in fighting styles, which is a big deal for her because when she was younger growing up, she wanted to learn how to fight alongside her brother, Shang-Chi. But the dad didn't really want his daughter doing that. and She wasn't allowed to do it. So she had to practice in secret. And when she came to the village of Tao Lo, she was so surprised to see men and women fighting fighting beside each other. She thought it was so beautiful. So I really liked that they showed that in the scene. I thought it was really nice. For the trivia portion of this there are so many fun facts on the IMDb page for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Um, there's at least like 73 trivia points on here, so I won't cover all of them. But if you do want to know in detail the behind the scenes of it, of it, I highly suggest looking on IMDb for the information or, you know, a quick Google search of just behind the scenes Shang-Chi. There are a lot of videos on YouTube about the fighting styles with the choreographer work choreographers were how long it took them to do training what type of style of fighting that they did um just reading the information about that and knowing getting to know the comic book more because i didn't know it going in at first there's just so much wonderful information with it so that being said let's go ahead and dive right into it now for this role when uh Simu Liu was cast as shang chi he was already he was already knowledgeable in taekwondo gymnastics and wing chun but for this role uh, as ma- the master of kung fu, he trained in Tai Chi, Wu Shu, uh, Mai Tai, Pancock, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Pancock Salat, Krav Maga, Jiu Jitsu, Boxing, and Street Fighting. That's already amazing. Um, now, this is the guy who played Wen Wu, Tony Chua Lungs. Is that how you say his last name? I hope that's how you say his last name. Um, He's already a very known actor in Hong Kong, but this is his first role in an American film and his first English-speaking role, even though he always has spoken English fluently. In the late 1980s, Stan Lee had considered a film or TV TV series about Shang-Chi and had in mind Brandon Lee, son of martial arts superstar Bruce Lee, for the role. Shang-Chi was visually based on Bruce Lee, so Brandon seemed a fitting choice, but the plan fell through. Now, I spoke to somebody about Shang-Chi after they saw it, and out of all the people I've spoken to about this movie, they didn't really care for it, and they did admit that they're more so of a DC fan, and when I asked him why he didn't like it, like, what about the movie did he not like, he said, oh, it seemed like they were trying to be too much like Bruce Lee, like a rip of a Bruce Lee movie, and I let him know, because I already did the research, I was like, oh, well, you know... 
the character is kind of modeled after Bruce Lee anyway. So that probably is why you're getting that idea. And just like to interrupt this whole trivia thing for a second, you can like DC and Marvel. You can like one or the other. But I don't think you have to rag on either of the two of them. You know, I think they both have pros and cons. I think that Marvel Marvel has this formula and Marvel's like, we want to cater to every age group, every di- uh, demographic. We want to try to see how many seats we can get and uh, people we can get in those seats. Versus DC, I think DC is very, it's like extremely mature content. All their movies are very dark. And I'm when I say dark, I mean an actual color on the screen versus Marvel that has pops of color and they choose when they want to have a, a, a dark scene or two. And the dialogue, you know, I, I can't take my seven-year-old niece to go see a, the latest DC movie. She's going to be very, you know, not entertained because it, the content's too serious. There's not a lot of like comedic breaks, or she's gonna be. She's not gonna really understand and get. And she probably will get confused. Versus a Marvel film where a little bit more lighter and co- or brighter in color. They have jokes that are more geared towards children. You know what I mean, like. It just, I feel like there's a definitely a contrast, but I think that they can obviously both exist. And then you have the latter, which is like a show like The Boys or Invincible, where it's like, yeah, you're still having superheroes, but you're seeing that someone can have superpowers and they don't have to be this um, marvel of a person like Superman. They don't need to be perfect. They have faults too. You know, they, yeah, it's like, oh, I got to save these, these people and save that people. I don't feel like doing it. I'm so tired of it. And that's why I like shows like The Boys and Invincible. I think there's a space where all of these can exist as well as other comic book platforms that are, you know, being adapted into TV shows and movies. In the comics and Mandarin and in various animated TV shows, wears 10 alien rings on his fingers. In this film, the rings are revised to be Hungar iron rings worn on the forearms, five on each arm. And these rings are traditionally used in martial arts training to strengthen the arms and fists. This change was made to incorporate Chinese culture. And because cosmic jewelry had already been done with Thanos, the Titan, and the form of the Infinity Stones and Infinity Gauntlet. This is the 25th film of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, Wen Wu is named after the Chinese dual concept of Wen, which is civil, civil administration and Wu, martial administration. This movie made $94.4 million in the U.S. box office, shattering the box office records for the four-day Labor Day weekend by beating Halloween from 2007's uh, $30.5 million record. Mark Ruffalo appears in a mid-credit scene as Bruce Banner. He is no longer looking like the Hulk, as he did in his last appearance in Avengers Endgame from 2019, but his arm is still in a sling after injuring himself using the Infinity Stones. So obviously this movie is taking place a little bit after that time frame, which is great so now we know about continuity and where this film uh, goes on the line of Marvel films. This movie marks the return of Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery after his apparition in Iron Man 3 from 2013 and the short Marvel one shot All Hail the King in 2014. In addition, it reveals his fate after the short, which is left in a cliffhanger. So, what would I rate this movie? I would rate Shang-Chi The Legend of the Ten Rings 
for me, a solid 10. And I'm giving it a 10 because I liked the actors. I thought they did a, a, a amazing job showcasing their skills. Everybody had a had this awesome skill set that they're able to showcase in a nice way. It didn't feel oversaturated or too much. I liked the designs of the sets. I liked the locations. They're very beautiful and vibrant. Um, I like that they brought us a little bit more into Chinese culture. I got to learn some things that may not have known, maybe some words in that in, in that language that I may not have heard about. That was very nice. I, I like the part when they're talking about what it's like uh, not, you know, being being in America, being raised in America, but your family roots are from a different country and what it's like having certain traditions and foods that may not be accepted. But now in this time period in society, now it it says people try to adopt your culture and make it mainstream where it's like I was already, you know, eating avocados and hummus, but now it's it's popular. And I like that they focus on that. I think that they talked about it enough, but not too much to make it annoying for people. I think it was enough to, to show to show people like, hey, this is what it feels like, you know, having um, first gener- being first generation immigrant. You know, I really, really liked that part of the movie. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Pineapple Reels. If you want to follow me on Instagram, that Instagram handle is going to be at Pineapple Reels on Instagram. So it's Pineapple Reels. And then for my email, it's pineapplereels at gmail.com. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions for future shows, let me know. You can DM me, you can email me, and I'll get to you. If you just want to have a discussion about something, have a question about a film that I saw or think that I saw and want to know my opinion or an explanation of something, go ahead and let me know. Now, for next episode, I want to cover who is the best Batman. Stay tuned. <laughs>